Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. Thank you so much. I am naturally indebted to And the Oscar goes to... Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Hello, showtime. Let's do it. We're back. Welcome to another episode. Uh, This is episode six on the 6th Academy Awards and the Best Picture winner, Cavalcade. Cavalcade. 1933 Academy Awards. It was a big year. Yes. We're starting to get into the era where every year there's a lot of really interesting films. I feel like the first few years there were some pretty clear standouts and we're starting to get into this phase where like there's lots of really interesting stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Golden age of Hollywood, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, and now that the Great Depression is over... Thank goodness. They can spend even more and more and more money. (laughs) So as you know, at the beginning of every show, we talk about the news in Penny, our cute little pup, Penny. Hi, Penny. She is indeed always sleeping on the couch when we record right next to us. She is there as always, standing guard. Um, This week, we wanted to give a little insight into Penny's talkativeness. She is a noisy, noisy girl. We're going to see if we can get her to say anything. All right, let's see. Here we go. I'll help you. She's sniffing the microphone. (laughs) So those were some groans from Penny. (laughs) And in case that doesn't work. (laughs) It didn't really necessarily sound like groans, but... It was like snorts. Anyways. Anyways. Penny is a very talkative pup. She groans and snorts, and cavaliers are known as a talkative breed. Their inside of their mouth is their bones. I don't know. There's some weird scientific thing yeah, about it. Yeah, it creates a different kind of noise than other dogs typically have, and so she tends to be very talkative in the sense that, like, when she's moving around, her like exhales create noise. And then also when she really wants something, instead of like whining like a dog might whine, she kind of like does a little cry instead. It's just like really funny. And that's the news with Penny. Okay, Zach. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the movie that we watched this week, The Best Picture Winner. All right. So this is a recap. We follow two families, the Marriotts, the wealthy family, and the Bridges, their servants, in Britain from 1899 through 1933 as their lives and the times and society change through the war against the Boers in South Africa, the death of Queen Victoria, the Titanic sinking, World War I, and the beginning of the Jazz Age. We see the highs and lows of this time through the deaths of several of the characters and the pain and horrors of the wars and time passing them by. That sounds about right. Yes. There are things that happen, but like, I don't know. It's another movie with sort of no plot. Yeah, it's another like sweeping epic that takes place over all these years. And it's about the common man against the landscape of major world events. And, you know, it's interesting. It's a it's a little bit of an attempt to force empathy and catharsis 
through relatable characters going through these big world events that at the time most people who were alive either lived through or their parents lived through and so there's a lot of relatability and all that and I feel like that's a big part of the appeal of this film. Well and it's interesting how watching these first few films that are all like this that have won best picture just makes me think a little bit differently about this time period Mm -hmm. and just how those people went through so many things like oh yeah so many huge transitions so many huge advances in technology in even just war technology like the change in warfare was so staggering to so many people it really affected them both outside of the war and in their family lives and in their personal lives and in the industrial revolution and everything yeah so much changed in such a short amount of time it feels very similar to the turn of the century that we've lived through where there's yeah. been this huge technological change and we've gone from analog to everything is computers and such yeah it'll be interesting to see how our 20s and 30s model yeah their 20s and 30s <laughs> i mean it kind of is already it's funny how these things happen Meaning 1920s and 30s and 2020s and 30s, not our age 20s and 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the ceremony a little bit. Perfect. So today we're talking about the Sixth Academy Awards, and they technically encompass the year of 1933. We are, as I've mentioned in the past, uh, the eligibility period for each Academy Awards season has changed. Um, In the past couple, it's been a August through July uh, eligibility season. And this is the first year that they adjusted it so that they could move forward and do a January 1st through December 31st season. Thank goodness. Yeah. So obviously they figured this out. Um, Because of this adjustment, they had to then make the adjustment period for this particular year from August 1932 through December of 1933. So this was a 17-month eligibility period. Which honestly sent some things out of whack. There's a couple of films that got nominated that were so far apart. They were technically over a year apart then. Um, There's also films that have multiple actors that were nominated for multiple things. For example, Catherine Hepburn, she's in Morning Glory. And then a few months later, Little Women comes out. And so she's nominated for Morning Glory, but uh, Little Women is also nominated for awards. And so it's like a very, very big season. So the Academy Awards were held on March 16th, 1934 at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And once again, we're finally getting into a regular schedule. So to recap, we've got January 1st through December 31st as the eligibility period. And then a few months later, we have the ceremony in March, which is what we still do today, with the exception of this year, 2020. This is the last time that no film had more than four nominations And it's also the only year in Academy history in which no film other than the Best Picture received multiple nominations. So we're kind of flip-flopping from last time with Grand Hotel, where for Grand Hotel, Best Picture was the only nomination it got. And Cavalcade has a couple of nominations, whereas other films do not, which is just very interesting how it's shaken out. Cavalcade becomes the fourth film to win the Best Picture without a writing nomination and is the last until Hamlet in 1948. Walt Disney also becomes the first person to win two consecutive Academy Awards, winning Best Short Subject Cartoon for The Three Little Pigs after previously having innovated and won in that category the year before for Flowers and Trees, which was a part of the Silly Symphonies. Yeah, two really like standout cartoons that 
I mean, I feel like a lot of people who know Disney stuff have seen those even yeah, today. Exactly. And they both were very pioneering shorts. Um, as we talked about Flowers and Trees last time, The Three Little Pigs, which is what won this time, is one of the earliest films displaying personality animation. Um, when you watch it, each of the three little pigs has a very distinct personality. Their facial expressions are different from one another, and their facial ex- expressions represent what their character actually is. And so this was kind of an innovation in cartooning uh, or in animation that hadn't really happened before, hmm. which yeah. is why it was so exciting. Hmm. He's going places, I think. I think that guy's going to do something. I think he's going to have a good career. Hmm, maybe. <laughs> This particular year, they added only one new awards category, which was for Best Assistant Director. So bizarre. Yeah, which is a funny thing. And it once again, it goes to show that the studio model was what was the most important thing happening at the time. Do you know how many years they kept that award? Four years. So until 1937, they have this category, which, as we've talked about, this is going to be the golden age of Hollywood. Some mm. of the biggest productions are coming out. And so the assistant director is doing a lot of work. I can kind of understand why this position may have been something that the Academy would see as very valuable and a big contribution to the filmmaking process. Yeah, that's just so funny thinking about assistant directors today. I mean, they're above the line crew, but they really don't affect the final product at all. Yeah, the role of the assistant director is less about the vision of the production and more about the execution of the production. I wonder if that was different then. I'm sure it was. I would be really interested to learn more about that. Um, I don't really know a whole lot about like the film crews and what the positions were like and how they operated. But I think it's really interesting that this is a position that's very highly regarded. Yeah, interesting. So the ceremony was hosted by Will Rogers, who presented all of the awards. He was also the MC, but instead of having other directors, other actors present the awards to each other, they decided to just have him do the whole thing, which I don't know for better or for worse, because this is one of the first ceremonies that has one of the, quote, Oscar incidents. And what that term is kind of loosely defined as is the events at the actual ceremonies that... (laughs) get more buzz than the movies and the accolades that are given out. Womp womp. (laughs) I'm sure we all have some examples that come to mind, especially in recent ceremonies. The probably the most heinous being the La La Land Moonlight controversy and issue of revealing well, I mean also that. what just happened with yeah, Chadwick and Anthony Hopkins <laughs> it's very fresh in my mind and it's still a little sensitive so I didn't want to bring it up but yes exactly um the academy is a little bit notorious for trying to do things that backfire and end up causing more frustration and take away from the awards that are being presented. Um, And I feel like obviously we all know that's the tragedy of Moonlight, um, which deserved to have its win celebrated as a pioneering film and got overshadowed by the controversy of the La La Land exposure and all that kind of stuff. So this is one of those moments. It's one of the first in recorded history for the Academy Awards. So Will Rogers is about to announce Best Director. And instead of saying the award goes to so-and-so, he simply says, come up and get it, Frank. And he didn't realize that of the three directors that were nominated for Best Director, two of them were named Frank. So both of them get up. And Frank Capra, who was nominated for Lady for a Day, gets to the stage first. And he's all excited to win the award. But in fact, Frank Lloyd for Cavalcade had won. 
And so they're both standing there. It's extremely awkward. They don't know what to do. And Frank Copper decides that in order to downplay the event and not embarrass Will Rogers or even himself, he reaches out to the third nominee, George Cukor, for Little Women and invites him to the stage and says, let's just all stand up here together. (laughs) And they give the award to Frank Lloyd. Mm, Horrible. Yeah. Such a bumble. So unfortunate. So embarrassing. I know. Well, and it also kind of goes to show the culture at that time. They all kind of knew each other. Yeah. And so there's a lot of like, hey, Frank, just get on up here. You know, it, it feels like you're just calling your buddy to give him an award and you don't realize how insensitive it is. So unfortunately, that overshadowed his win as best director. Hmm. Um, and I feel very, very, very bad for Frank Capra, who obviously thought he was about to win an Academy Award. Yeah. Big bummer. Big bummer. Another thing that was kind of funny for this particular year that got bumbled during this section of the ceremony where this announcement went awry was that um, all the second and third place winners were also announced for each award. Oh, no. Yeah. So we like they announced who the runners up were, basically. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Which is like so so cringy. (laughs) As we talked about with the first ceremony, it's like. Why would you want to know that you were the worst came in second or third? <sighs> yeah. Uh it, in a way it kind of detracts from the fact that everyone does it, like everyone's work because everyone puts in so much work for these films and they're all such different things. Like that's what blows my mind. It's not something that you can rate numerically. It's across the board. These are excellent performances or excellent direction or excellent cinematography. It's not, this is the best then this is the second best and this is the third best because how do you compare a sweeping epic with an intimate family drama or a massive Broadway musical? Well, and it also wipes out that you even got nominated because it's kind of like, you're no longer better than everyone because you got nominated. <laughs> you're last place in this ceremony now. Yeah, what a bummer. It's like a race suddenly instead of just like an award. So yeah, that didn't last on. Uh, awkward ceremony on a couple of levels, but you know, that's how it goes sometimes. <laughs> uh, um, also on March 16th, 1934, is the first confirmed newspaper reference to the Academy Award as an Oscar. Um, So it's the first, like, official thing. During the ceremony, Walt Disney refers to his statue as an Oscar. When he gets his speech, he says, thank you for this little Oscar. And so it becomes an even more important part of the public lexicon. And then writer Sidney Skolaski uses the word in his gossip column for the first time in print. And so we are officially now celebrating the Oscars, which are the little awards. Hmm. Interesting. So let's get into the actual awards and nominees. There's a lot of really just like interesting competition that happened this year. Um, So as we all know, for Outstanding Production or Best Picture, Cavalcade wins. Um, But there were a lot of movies this year that are still in the public lexicon that were really strong competitors. For example, 42nd Street, which had two nominations but no wins, is still considered one of the greatest musicals in movie history. Um, It set the precedent for the idea of the backstage musical that gave a look into the life of Broadway dancers and how you get to New York, which is obviously a point of interest even today. (laughs) There was uh, A Farewell to Arms, which is the first film adaption of Ernest Hemingway's novel. She Done Him Wrong, which I hadn't really heard of at this point, but it features Sassy Mae West as a 1980 saloon singer and Cary Grant as an undercover cop. 
And this is the only Mae West film that was ever nominated. Oh my, that's so weird. Yeah, well, and it's speculated that if this film had come out even a year later, once the Hayes Code had been forced into production, it would not have gotten nominated. And that that is probably a big part of why none of her films have been nominated, just because of some of the content that was not, I don't know, Academy friendly at the time. Hmm. Bummer for her. A Lady for a Day is the first Best Picture nomination for Columbia. Additionally, Little Women, the very first adoption, gets nominated for Best Picture. This is the one with Katherine Hepburn playing Joe March, which is, of course, a phenomenal film, as every young woman should know. It's just one of my all-time favorite stories. And so this is the first adoption. Additionally, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang is nominated for Best Picture, which is a film that I've not seen, but it is about a very brutally treated chain gang member. And it's one of the first socially conscious films that gets nominated for an Academy Award. And I was reading a lot of articles about how people think that this is a film that should have been either more highly considered for Best Picture, should have won Best Picture, and should probably still be watched today because a lot of the issues about the prison system that they talk about in this film, brutality and some of the just unfair nature of the system, the way it keeps prisoners imprisoned for profit uh, are still in place today. And so I have not seen it, but I'm interested in watching it. And it seems like a film that could be relevant to watch, even though it is such an old thing. Yeah, it's interesting because this year is the first year that's sort of indicative of what the Academy Awards will become. Yeah. And it's also indicative of the fact that studios are making films about lots of different things. Because additionally, um, there's also one of the first semi-documentaries in the film, I Am a fugitive from a chain gang because they uh, use real prisoners. They use a lot of information about what was actually happening in order to convey the quote storyline. This is also the first year that there is a foreign made film involved in the private life of Henry VIII, uh, which has two nominations and one win for best actor. Um, It is a British film. And also Loughton, who plays uh, King Henry VIII, is the first British actor to win best actor. So we'll go into that in a second. Additionally, films State Fair and Smiling Through uh, are also nominated for Best Picture. The award for Best Director, as I mentioned, goes to Frank Lloyd. Other nominees were Frank Capra for Lady for a Day and George Cooker for Little Women. For Best Actor, Charles Lawton wins for The Private Life of Henry VIII. And just a funny thing that I was reading about this is that throughout awards history, more Oscar nominations have been given for the character of 16th century Henry VIII than any other historical or literary figure. Huh. Isn't that, that funny? That is really weird. Uh, other actors that have played Henry VIII are Robert Shaw in A Man for All Seasons in 1966, and additionally Richard Burton for the same character in Anne of the Thousand Days in 1969. Hmm. Fascination with King Henry and his wives. And I guess now that I think about it, like... There probably aren't a lot of one other one that I could think of is um, A Star is Born. There aren't that many remakes that have gone through all of Hollywood history Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And it's interesting because King Henry VIII, I should say, is such an interesting character that I think has captivated audiences and just like the drama, the gluttony, the ridiculousness, the uproar it caused. I mean, it's a very interesting story. Yeah. Um, Best Actress goes to Katherine Hepburn for Morning Glory. Um, And this is Katherine Hepburn's first ever Academy Award. Um, She was not nominated for Little Women that year, 
um, although it got nominated for Best Picture. But they think that that is due to the lawn process, that if they had been split into two years, she may have gotten a nomination for both. But since it was within the same year, the Academy felt uncomfortable and wanted to only nominate her for one thing in the category. Morning Glory is her third film ever, uh, Little Women being her fourth. And so there was a lot of kind of ill will about her winning this award because she was so young. She was only 25 and this is only her third film ever. And so there were all these seasoned actresses who felt like they had earned their place in Hollywood, had earned their spot and deserved the award over her. Hmm. And because of this, she did not attend the award ceremony, even though she was very, very happy to win the award. And this becomes a trend for the rest of her career. She ends up never attending the Academy Awards. Oh, wow. That's so weird. Yeah. She always has someone else receive the award for her. Best Original Story goes to One Way Passage, uh, written by Robert Lord. Best Adapted Screenplay goes to Little Women um, by Victor Heerman and Sarah Y. Mason, based on the novel by Louisa May Alcott. Best Art Direction goes to Cavalcade for William S. Darling. Best Cinematography goes to A Farewell to Arms, Charles Lang. Best Live Action Short Subject Comedy goes to So This is Harris from RKO Pictures. Best Live Action Short Subject Novelty goes to Krakatoa uh, for Educational Pictures. Best Short Subject Cartoon, as we mentioned, goes to Three Little Pigs from Walt Disney and United Artists. Best Sound Recording goes to A Farewell to Arms, Franklin Hansen. Best Assistant Director goes to Seven People. Oh, my god! Seven out of 13 nominated win this award. So the winners are Charles Barton from Paramount, Scott Beale from Universal, Charles Dorian from MGM, Fred Fox from United Artists, Gordon Hollingshead from Warner Bros., Dewey Starkey from RKO, and William Tummel from 20th Century Fox. Basically, every studio. Yeah, right. So They all wanted an excuse to win an award. Yeah, I guess. I don't really know. And, you know, it's funny. We were talking about how maybe, like, this is a prestigious position that deserved to get a nomination. Well, maybe it is a cheap way for studios to rack up awards. So that. Who knows? I don't want to take away from their accomplishments, but it's possible. So why did this picture win? There's a lot of speculation about it. Um, Obviously, there were a lot of really important films that were nominated that year. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the main reasons that people think is that very similarly to Cimarron, which we talked about in a previous episode, this is another epic spanning multiple decades set against a really, really big landscape of world events. Um, But the focus is on, quote, a relatable family. Uh, a couple of characters that hopefully were relatable, the matriarch, the son, the daughter, another woman, um, you know, these kinds of people that would have been relatable to audiences watching. Um, This style of writing is still pretty rare. Uh, It's still a rare filmmaking style. It's also very expensive to have so many costumes from so many decades, to have so many set pieces that represent big things, to have war scenes and also musical scenes and lots of things like that. Um, You have to sink a lot of money into that. And so I think that was something that was very uh, exciting. And of course, as we mentioned, by showcasing a family's life against the backdrop of these world events, um, the audience immediately develops empathy and compassion and sees themselves through the story. It also represented some of the more wholesome and quaint moments of the early 20th century that most of these people would have lived through. And so there's the nostalgia element as well. Um, And it discussed a lot of how major world events affected the common man, um, including some of the anti-war messages. Um, We see some of the characters go to war and they come back distraught. Um, Similarly to All Quiet on the Western Front, there's all this excitement about the prospect of going to war, about sending these boys off to war. 
And then we see the horrors, not nearly as explicitly or as effectively, I would say, as All Quiet on the Western Front. But um, they also share the perspective of the women at home, which was a little bit new. Um, We get to see the whole story through the matriarch's eyes. And because of that, it becomes a story about the unsung hero, which is the women who were left at home to hold their families together that spend all this time crippled with worry, trying to keep society going on. Um, And as a woman, I think that it would have been really exciting to see a film that was through that perspective because it's a perspective that gets glossed over very often. Um, They still had to make her very glamorous and rich and all those kinds of things in order for it to be appealing, which I disagree with, but um, it still is a way to include that perspective. Yeah. Her character was a little odd to me. Uh, Yeah. Um, Personally, just to give some of my thoughts about this, I don't think it should have won. I can understand why these factors would have influenced the Academy votes, but personally, I found it to be a little bit ridiculous. I tended to roll my eyes a lot when I saw this extremely wealthy family going through hardship. I wasn't particularly moved. I found a lot of the characters to be tropish and uh, a little bit simplistic. Um, The depiction of drunkenness after having PTSD and being a person that... So all this, I'm describing the character of Alfred. Uh, He comes back from war and he's struggling with PTSD. He becomes a drunk and he becomes violent in a very ridiculous fashion. And it kind of glosses over the reality of the mental health issues and the help that he actually needs. And of course, he uh, ends up dying in a very tragic fashion. He brings his family down, all these kinds of things. And they almost blame him for the situation that his family is in financially when he is clearly struggling with something and no one is helping him. And so I didn't appreciate that at all. Additionally, I think that there are more nuanced films. The acting in this was ridiculous. Oh my gosh, to say the least. Very dramatic. Very like what you think of as like stereotypical old Hollywood. Like turn to the camera and stare out into the distance and say the words of your parting lover and blah, 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 blah. Well, and particularly the woman who played Jane, Diana Winyard. Jane is the matriarch that the film is about. She was nominated best mm-hmm. actress but she was like she was torturous the worst one in the film i felt yeah it's because she had a lot of dramatic moments and she very clearly was over directed you could tell that she was like look here walk here hit the mark look here talk to him hit the mark and like was going through the motions of how to have an emotional reaction rather than actually having an emotional reaction which i think is partially part of the style of acting um i don't think that the naturalism of some of the films we've watched already had caught on entirely. Um, I think that's one of the greatest strengths of... Lewis Milestone. Yeah, Lewis Milestone. And his direction, which was to be responsive to what was happening. And instead of hitting the marks correctly, the emphasis was on responding and having that guttural reaction. Whereas in this film, it's very clear that the pictures, the style of the shots, the... um, exact emotional reactions that the script dictates were far more important than having an authentic reaction. I think part of that was because it was adapted from a play first. Yeah, you can definitely feel it. So that's my information on the sixth Academy Awards and a little bit of my opinions as well. Um, So with that said, let's go to a break.
And we're back. Time for me <laughs> to talk about the film. Zach's big moment. I get one every week. All right. So a few little tidbits and facts things that I like to start off with. Um, first, just some things happening in the film industry. Um, Roman Polanski, Carol Burnett, Gene Wilder, Fred Willard, and Tim Conway are all born in 1933. What a year! Also, these are the film debuts of Fred Astaire, Lucille Ball, Orson Welles, Errol Flynn, and Margaret Sullivan. Well, dang, what a year! I know. And also this year, uh, the first King Kong movie is debuted. Oh, no, I was going to say that. Uh, ah, gotcha. Dang it. I... Also this year, the drive-in theater is invented in Camden, New Jersey. Hey, I know Camden. Mm-hmm. That's pretty close to where I grew up. Nice. And of course, that would become a huge thing throughout the middle of the century and then die away and become another big thing during COVID. Hey, yeah. All right. So on to the film. Uh, the budget for this film was $1.1 million in their 1930s money. Um, so budgets for these films are slowly growing more and more. This would be $20 million today, which would still be considered like low budget today. Yeah, interesting. But this would be considered like a high-budget film. Hmm. Obviously, this film cost them a lot of money. Um, and the film was actually a really big financial success. Um, it was not in the top 10 of box office grabs for that year. Um, but because of the worldwide market, and especially in the UK, they made as much money on this film in the UK as they did in the US. Hmm. Wow. Because of Noel Coward and yeah, totally. took place in England. and Already all had some popularity. So I mentioned Noel Coward. Um, the play was originally by him. He was currently one of the highest paid writers in history in general, but in that time as well, making around 50,000 pounds per year, which would be about three and a half million pounds per year today. Mm, what a lucky deck. Yeah. And rights to the play and some of his original music that he wrote for the play were purchased from him for about $100,000 or about $2 million. Um, so remember, this is close to the cost that was paid for Cimarron, mm. which at the time, like a couple years past in Oscar history, was the highest paid ever for the royalties of a work of literature. Um, so this is also in that same range. Also, remember last week we talked about Irving Thalberg, um, and he is really driving the market right now to adapt literature and plays. Mm. Everybody gotcha. is just hungry for adapting literature. And of course, at this time, there's so much literature already and films are so new. Everybody's trying to get their hands on some of these more famous things to do. Well, and it makes sense. It's a model that continues to work because when people have read the story, they can vouch for it. So it's like when you read Little Women, you can say, oh my gosh, I love Little Women. Right. And it's already a good story. Yeah, so of course, I'd love course, to see it. Yeah. Visually, it will be good. And it's interesting because at the time, Coward was writing very small, like drawing room plays and also these huge epics. Um, for example, he went from writing Private Lives <laughs> and then Cavalcade was his next play. Oh, my heavens. You could not be more different. Yeah. And it's interesting because his epics have not survived at all. 
Yeah, definitely not. They're and, not worth doing in a theater. They're way too expensive. Yeah. There's so much that has to go into it. But his intimate plays are still produced at major theater companies every single year. Right. Private Lives yeah, being I've one of them. Yeah, I've seen it way too many Blood times. Blood Spirit. Oh, too I many mean, times. They're also like educational plays now too. So like every university you have to do a Noel Coward. Yeah. So originally he wanted to follow up Private Lives with an epic detailing the French Revolution um, but he saw a photograph or like a picture cartoon, I'm not really sure, in the Illustrated London News of a troop ship going to the Boer War and settled on that as his starting point for his next play. Um, so he talked to his producer and told him that he wanted to do this play and he wanted to book the biggest theater in London at the time, which was the Coliseum. Um, but his producer booked Drury Lane instead, which was the second largest theater in London. And Coward and his designer, Gladys Calthrop, set to work. Um, and she went to the theater, designed 22 different sets for the show and oh, hundreds of costumes. Oh, my heavens. So she gets like the outline of the play and immediately has to start working because he is going to churn out this play over the next couple months and then it's going to be up. They also had to install two new hydraulic lifts in the theater to accommodate all the scene changes and the demands of the show. Oh, my word. The original production had a cast and crew of over 400 people to accomplish the major group scenes and cavalcades throughout the town. Oh, my goodness. There were many historical vignettes playing simultaneously during parts of the play, which in turn turned into those sequences of the film with all of mm. the like overlapping pictures and sound. And that was their way of translating that to film. Um, they even had horses, carts, some automobiles, and a double-decker bus drove through one of the scenes on the stage. Oh, my goodness gracious. What a nightmare for production. Yeah. <laughs> it ran over 400 performances and was a hugely successful play, very financially successful for Coward and nice. the theater and his producers and his designer. And They got the money from the double-decker bus back. Yes. Because of this, uh, Fox reached out to him. They purchased the rights to it including some of the songs that he wrote for it, which were in the film. And they had Frank Borzage pegged as the director of theirs to do it. Uh, so he went to England and watched the production and actually filmed the whole production to make it easier for him to translate it to film. Um, and this had never been done before, where they would like actually film the entire production hmm. of a theater show. Unfortunately, things got shuffled around, and he ended up getting loaned to Paramount to direct A Farewell to Arms this year. Oh, another adaption. Which worked out for him because it was nominated for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. um, and he was also getting loaned to United Artists to direct the film Secrets, which was Mary Pickford's last film. Oh. Um, so he felt that it was okay to give up Cavalcade to do those, to two, do things. those two things. That's um, fair. A funny little history thing about secrets mary pickford had wanted to do this film several times which was also another adaptation um there was a film version that she was doing in 1930 
and she was starring in it and it was going so horribly that she found all the negatives and destroyed them all in the middle of filming. She is an aggressive lady. She is in charge of her career. So, and that film had already spent $300,000. Oh my gosh. And it was trashed and they oh stopped production gosh. immediately and that production never went up. I don't know what to think about her because on one hand, I love the fact that she takes everything into her own hands. She's like, all right, I'm going to have people over for tea so that they give me a freaking Academy Award. I'm going to destroy the negative so that no one sees a bad thing about me. I mean, her but, and, and Douglas Fairbanks were considered like... Pioneers? Basically yeah. the presidents of I mean, they're Hollywood. the reason this whole thing happens. But at the same time, it's like, oh my gosh, so many people worked on that film. So much money just gone. Yeah. Tragic. So that was what happened before he made that film again with her which <laughs> ended up being her, her last back? film i mean it was all she wanted to do it anyways a funny little story there back to cavalcade so winfield sheehan was one of fox's biggest producers he had sort of been out of the game for a bit and basically came back after like almost a year hiatus from filmmaking and he jumped on to produce this film for fox and they were so happy because he had a great vision for it he had the idea to bring in an English director after losing Borzage, so he hired Frank Lloyd, who was a Scottish man who was in Hollywood. Uh, Lloyd had already had a few um, Academy nominations for Best Director at this point, so he just seemed like the perfect choice. He also wanted English writers, since Coward didn't want to adapt the script himself. Um, Coward was obviously all about the money, and no amount of money <laughs> could have caused him to like adapt his own script for the film, so... <laughs> Uh, he just sold it, collected his paycheck, and let someone else do it. I mean, good for him. <laughs> and Sheehan did want a few changes made. The ending of the play was like a downer ending. Mm -hmm. And he said the ending of the film needed to be happier. He said at the time, <laughs> films ended with hope. This is the difference between theater and film at the time. Right. Whereas plays could end on a low note and nobody cared. Like... That was just what it is. As you remember, it ended with the New yeah. Year's Eve of 1933. They talk about how they're going to go forward together and how we remember the past and yeah. hope for the and future. And England is a great nation and it's going to survive. Now, England forever. Another big change was that the character of Jane had all the good speeches in the play because the actor playing her husband, Robert, was not very good at delivering monologues. Huh. So I don't know when that adjustment was made when they were doing the play, but essentially Noel Coward wrote them all for her. Um, and so for the film, they split them up so that Robert could have a few of the monologues. Gotcha. Then he also told the writers that, quote, the dialogue must be in plain, simple language, which can be understood by everyone from 12 to 75 years of age. Cut down the dialogue so that every line has story composition or gets laughs. The less dialogue, the better. But we must not miss any important points in the dialogue of the stage play. Mm, smart. Very smart. The first like real film adaption from a book where they're like, we know how we have to do this. We yeah. have to change the medium. Right. You and I were commenting, watching the film, that it was very funny. The jokes oh, were landing. Funny. Yeah. Um, it was very quippy. It was not boring at all. Well, and it felt like we were watching a Noel Coward play, but not in the heavy, lengthy way that Noel Coward plays can be. Right. Yeah. So this was pretty integral into making this film a success. And I think they accomplished that for sure. Definitely. Um, a couple like random actors from the stage play were actually in the film as well so una o'connor 
uh, played her role as Ellen Bridges. Merle Tottenham uh, played her role again as Annie. And Irene Brown played her role again as Margaret Harris, the friend. Um, They played in both the play and the film. One other thing, we've talked about the code a few times. This is still considered pre-code. The code will go into full force in 1934. Um, This is the last year that's considered pre-code. They are really trying to crack down at this time. They're trying to make a transition into all the films being modeled under the code. Mm -hmm. Um, So in this film, there were two uses of the word damn and one use of the phrase hell of a lot. Oh my gosh, I'm offended. They had to go back and forth a bunch over whether these were going to be kept in the film or not. Um, And Lloyd said that they definitely needed to be in the film for the effect, um, and particularly in the sentences and the scenes that they were used in. And the code people were guessing that no one would be offended by them, which was totally the point of the code to take out the things that would cause offense and leave in the things that were essential. So since there was deemed no offense, no need to take them out. Um, Lloyd also argued whether it was true or not. Um, His argument was that several of the actors had already gone back to England, so there would be no way to reshoot them. (laughs) That's a good one. And the scenes and lines in question were very integral to the plot and the story. So there was no way that they could just cut them. So they ended up being left in, um, but it was worried that this was going to start setting a precedent for other films to get away with things, such as like, well, the cavalcade got to keep two dams and a hell, so I should be allowed to also get two dams and a hell. I keep your dams and I raise you one hell. So they were worried about this, but of course, since the code went into full effect in the next year, they really cracked down on that Mm. and it didn't become a problem. Um, Because the code was really cracked down on in 1935, they had to release different versions of the film that were edited so that the cabaret sequence, there were two same-sex couples in that sequence and both of those were removed because they were, quote, conveying a suggestion of sex perversion, according to one Hayes office official. (laughs) Yeah, very dumb. So that was the controversy about that film yeah. regarding the Hayes Code. Why did this film win? You went into it a little bit. Um, just a couple other thoughts that I'll add. Uh, at this time, Britain in particular is coming out of their part of the Great Depression. They were hit equally as hard as America during this time period. Um, their unemployment rate reached 70%. People, as they're coming out of it, are not wanting to repeat the past, but are hoping to learn from it. I think this is a big reason why Noel Coward settled on writing this story as they're all looking back over the last Mm -hmm. three decades. While they were making the film, there was even talks in Fox that they would Americanize it. They weren't sure if American audiences would be down for the whole film taking place in England. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I was surprised that an American organization would be so interested in a British film, not British, but like a yeah. story about British well, people. Well, and I think it's because Noel Coward was pretty ubiquitous at the time. Sure. His plays were being performed on Broadway and yeah. other cities in America. Well, and American audiences were used to many British plays and theater productions because that's where the majority of those things came from to start. 
And at the time, um, ties between the UK and the US are strengthening and like... Mm -hmm. Especially post-World War One. Yeah, they're just becoming more and more allies as they are seemingly the most like each other as far as like the the european nation that's most connected to the u.s Mm -hmm. whereas the other nations they've just been fighting with unfortunately (laughs) did it deserve to win i don't know it's fine (laughs) you don't need to go and watch this film honestly i mean i would give it a clear no i don't think it deserved to win i can understand why it did but I think that there are films that were released that year that pushed the boundaries a little bit more, that also were more nuanced, um, that dealt with deeper issues. Even something as simple as Little Women, I think, deals with issues that are more relatable to the common man than this film does. I also think that films like I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang are more innovative. Um, and 42nd Street Well, is- and that version of 42nd Street is... Still a very worthwhile version to watch. Yeah, exactly. It's still a phenomenal version of what a movie musical can be. And we talked about the Broadway melody before, and this is like an explosion of talent. It features phenomenal choreography. It features bigger productions. It is very interesting. It also has a more complicated narrative. Anyways. Yeah, and I think it just, the precedent has been set for this kind of film to win. Yes. A big play turned into a film well and the academy awards are already starting yeah to lean into those epics to lean into the drama of it all which is a theme and the academy loves a good historical drama i mean we see it every year yeah unfortunately a lot of the original storytelling throughout the years gets overlooked yeah it's true i also think that there is um it's just a bit heavy-handed um i think that the ideas and themes they're trying to communicate they express way too explicitly so that they have no impact um they continually say things and don't show you so you don't connect to the ideas that they're trying to communicate whereas like when i watch other movies that we've talked about even like all quiet on the western front or wings or even like grand hotel you get to experience the story in such a way that when the movie is finished you kind of have made your own decision about things where this is a very preachy movie to me. And I guess it does give some good historical context. Definitely. From this time. I mean, it was being made literally right then. Definitely. But even then, there are probably other better ones that you could watch instead if you're interested. Yeah. So that takes us to our closing segment where we like to thank the Academy for things relating to this film. And I will begin. Go for it. I would love, love, love to thank the Academy for the funniest moment in this film being preserved for all time. And this would be Merle Tottenham playing Annie. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, yeah, but where's Africa? Where is it? Where's Africa? As she threateningly holds a butcher knife and is, like, pointing it at the person I know where it is on a map, but where is it? It was just this bizarre, so bizarre moment where it was almost like she was asking for like a hidden, yeah, but where do you keep your ring? Because I would like to go find it and <laughs> take it for myself. I feel like that actress had her own journey, like that her character was on that just got cut from the script or wasn't a part of the movie in any way. Well, and obviously she did that 
in the play. Yeah. Version. Well, and it seems like it's a funny bit that she's relying on like a laugh for. And it's hard when you come from the stage and move to the film and you don't get those actual laughs from an audience. Oh, I think it can I be was really laughing. hard to know how to play those things. I was laughing. Well, she couldn't hear you. Favorite <laughs> moment of the film. <laughs> uh, I would like to thank the Academy for continuing to embrace the tradition of full on mouth kissing everyone you know. This oh, is yet another Still film. Full on mouth kissing. <laughs> it was so funny. Doesn't matter who you are. We're there, just gonna kiss everybody. There's a scene the where the son and the mother are parting ways, and he just like grabs her and like tilts head full smash. I was like, "All right, we're still doing it." Uh, I would like to thank the Academy for the celebration of dancing. And no, I'm not talking about 42nd Street. I'm talking about the character of Fanny in Cavalcade, who is the most beautiful, beautiful, graceful, extraordinary dancer leading these amazing shows. And if you watch this film, you will see that her amazing dancing is a a little kick to the left, a little kick to the right, a little fan action, and then back to the little kicks. What's funny is that she was like a highly regarded dance talent. She went to Rada and like... Really? Yes. She was considered... It was like a big deal that she was oh my in this gosh. movie. I was like making fun of her the whole movie. I know. I, I don't know like, why. I could literally stand up deal. and do that right now. And I don't know. Maybe they just didn't choreograph her well, but apparently yeah. she was a really amazing dancer. That's a shame. They definitely didn't give her anything meaningful then because she looks like she's just kind of like a pretty girl floating around. Yeah. And I would like to give a final thanks to the Academy for the invention of the Academy flub. They started all here in the Sixth Academy Awards Uh, and keep on flubbing some awards all the way up to this year, 2021. Going strong. A strong tradition. Any final thoughts? Uh, Not really. Uh, I'm excited to move on. Yes. And move on we will. Join us next week when we talk about the Seventh Academy Awards and the Best Picture winner, It Happened One Night. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinga. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.